I want to give a shout out to Aventus, the world's leader in trade surveillance for digital assets. Trusted by Coinbase, Gemini, OSL, and many others, Aventus is also helping scores of other firms enter the crypto market. For digital asset trade surveillance, think Aventus. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy-to-use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. We have today as our guest, my longtime friend and market structure electronic trading whisperer, Dave Weisberger, co-founder and CEO of CoinRouts. Dave, it's been a long time coming that we've had you on the show. I think we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna get pretty fiery this morning, even though it's early in the morning relatively. We're going to get into it, but let's let's before we dive in in the crypto market right now. Let's give the audience an introduction for people who are maybe not as plugged into data, electronic trading markets, and, and aren't familiar with your background and what CoinRouts has been doing for the last three years. So yeah, Frank, thank you first of all for having me on the show. I my background, as you alluded to, is like thirty plus years in electronic trading. Most recently, having run, you know, spending the last decade building Two Sigma Securities, which was a wholesale market maker and uh, you know high-frequency trading firm, and then moving over to a software company that was acquired by IHS Market to run best execution reporting and research analytics for and head of market structure for that organization. And in 2017, I got the bug, and my son, Ian Weisberger, who is the co-founder of CoinRoutes with me, had the idea to build a company that would help people navigate the crypto markets. And so we set out five years ago to do exactly that. We filed patents, we built our MVP, and we started commercializing in 2018 a platform that takes market data from all the exchanges and market makers and provides algorithmic routing access as well as an EMS OMS to people. I don't say smart routing only because most people consider smart routing just finding the best price at an instant in time. I say algorithmic routing, which of course is smart in and of itself because we're often order placement. And in the crypto markets, the market structure is different than in equity markets. And frankly, it is significantly better for people to place passive orders in many circumstances than just to take liquidity for lots of reasons, from a fee reason and from a, a market impact reason. And so CoinRoutes uh, has grown significantly over the last five years. Uh, we have processed we're pushing $30 billion that have passed through the platform from our trading clients to date. Uh, we're in the multiple billions per month at this point. Per, you know, Now, our largest volume month, like everybody else's, was in May, where we were close to $6 billion through the platform. And we trade both derivatives and spot products in 
pretty much every exchange that matters and with most of the large market makers around the world. And we offer both sell-side products for dealers as well as uh, products for you know traders as well as APIs, et cetera. So that's what we do. Uh, so we're like we've been looking at data. We process 15 terabytes of crypto market data every day, Frank. So, you know, we look at data in the crypto market at a very structural level and have watched as the markets matured. And it has matured significantly over the last five years, uh, which is a large part of why a lot of what goes on in D.C. Uh, completely doesn't understand how much the market has matured and how the market is evolving. So let's break some of that down for folks who are maybe not familiar with, you know, what something like a smart order router is. So basically, clients come to coin routes and they're basically, maybe you mentioned not necessarily price, but they're going to put in an order and it's going to be routed to wherever there might be the most liquidity or it's going to right. get done in the most efficient way. Right. So, so let's say for the sake of argument, you're, you're used to trading on, I don't know, FTX. So you had Sam on the scoop not, not so long ago, and it was a great episode, and you know, he, he's terrific. So let's say you're trading on FTX. You go into FTX, and let's say you want to buy 100 Bitcoin worth of Bitcoin perpetuals. So let's say you want to do that. What are you going to do? You're going to type in an order at a price. And if it's a price that's higher than the current offer, it's either going to buy the whole thing or it's going to post at that price and, and leave it. And then if you want to change it, if the market moves, you got to type in another price, et cetera, et cetera. And you're constantly putting in individual orders. In coin routes, you could say, I want to buy 100 Bitcoin worth of perpetuals and just do it in line with the market. And we can give you a lot of different parameters, but let's just say I just want to do that. You hit the button. The system will then look at the order book on FTX and potentially look at the order book on other exchanges and determine two things. First, how much size to put on each individual order, because you don't want to let the whole market know that you're about to market buy 100 Bitcoin, because that's a reasonably large size order sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes 100 is, is small relative to the market. But let's say you're doing you know, $10 million worth of Luna Perpetual. Right, which is not, you know, which would be a, something that's very hot these days. But the reality is, you know, that's a lot. And so, mm -hmm. coin will break it into small pieces. The second thing it will do is it will figure out where is the current target price it should be posting at. Should it be taking liquidity or should it be posting liquidity? It will make those determinations and it will break the order up. And you will sit there and watch like a video game. The algorithm will break that order up into n number of pieces, will complete it as soon as practicable and achieve a better overall price than if you were sitting there manually typing in prices. And we can do other things. So people, you can stretch it out over time, et cetera. So it's a significant labor savings and a significant monetary savings than trading directly by typing on an exchange. And this is true in other examples where you may, let's say you're a, you're a trader and you have accounts on Coinbase, Kraken, Bitstamp, and you don't care where you're buying or selling. Uh, the algorithm could break it up over multiple pieces and place you know, maybe pieces on each exchange, or you could say, I want to trade on one. In all those cases, the computer is making those decisions. You've decided roughly what price, what time, and what parameters you want. But that ease of operation and that monetary savings can be very significant for trading firms. And that's why people use us. What's been interesting to me in terms of reporting on this market over the last four years has been seeing firms like, like CoinRoutes, which have their parallels in the traditional markets kind of coming into their sort of true self, their their full maturation. And when you look back, you can see how different the market is from the service providers that exist, whether it's folks doing Prime. 
the degree to which even the like more scrappy OTC desks developed what they look like today. You know, Genesis Global Trading provides a good example. Like these guys in 2013 had folks showing up to their desks with briefcases full of cash. They were kind of one of the last um, to go electronic. Now they're about 60% or so. That number could be wrong. We'll, we'll, we'll put a note in the episode. But they're increasingly more electronic. And so, you know, CoinRats is an example. Genesis is an example. You have more custodians. Um, and so clearly to us, we've been paying attention and we can see that even Genesis is like quarterly reports. They were they look like they were done in Microsoft Paint in 2016. Now they're actually pretty cool and look really nice. And I'm sure you guys would have your own examples of like how you've matured. But I, I want to go back to like your thoughts on like Washington, because I know you go down there a lot. Do they still just view this as like a bunch of basement dwellers, like hitting the keyboard to get on BitMEX? Like, is that the market in their view versus this maturation of firms like CoinRoutes, Genesis, the list goes on? I think it's a great question. And I think Washington is not monolithic anymore. And we saw, we learned this past weekend, which while incredibly disappointing, the absolute stupidity that an 85-year-old retiring senator wanting a defense amendment could torpedo better language in a bill that is very, very relevant was disappointing. But what was incredibly promising was to actually hear well-articulated views on the maturation and nature of the importance of crypto and digital assets from people like Pat Toomey, Ted Cruz, not to mention, of course, Cynthia Loomis, bipartisan leadership from Ron Wyden. There are definitely positive signs in the Senate that there are legislators who do understand how important crypto is. But at the same time, you see absolutely moronic statements, completely ignorant statements from people like Elizabeth Warren, who act just like, as you said, that crypto is all for illicit use, which has been thoroughly debunked, whether by chain analysis reports or elliptic, et cetera, or the FBI themselves, who will tell you that, and I've listened, I've heard it from you know senior people at the FBI, that they would prefer criminals to use Bitcoin than to use cash, debit cards, etc. So it's fascinating, the dichotomy. And, and one wonders that someone as smart as Senator Warren, is it ignorance and stupidity, or is it calculated narrative building where there's an interest that we're not actually seeing? Because it's yeah. really hard for anybody to look at the modern digital asset space if anyone spends 10 minutes with me and I show them the data showing CoinRoute's technology, they would not be able to make those statements. Uh, I've had conversations. What data, what data would you show them like that could convince those who disagree? The first thing I would show anybody is something we call real price, which we are distributing jointly with the CBOE. Real price, I can show you at every instant in time that what the price to buy a five Bitcoin, for example, we could do other numbers, but five Bitcoin with fees, if I was a retail investor or if I was an institutional investor, what would I pay at every single tick to buy five Bitcoin or to sell five or to buy a thousand Bitcoin or sell a thousand Bitcoin and what the midpoint price is? That level of price discovery and transparency, which we already have live with many clients around the world, doesn't exist in any commodity and frankly is more transparent than most equities once you get outside the S&P 500 in terms of where the real liquidity is. That level of transparency is, is very important from executable prices. 
Now, when you look at it, and so it, to me, that's very important. The other piece of data that's obvious that you don't need us to show you is the fact that volatility in individual equities can go dramatically larger than volatility in crypto. I mean, people didn't blink at Robinhood having an 80% move in a day. Yeah. day. So if you're going to tell me that equity regulation somehow makes volatility less problematic than crypto, I'm going to laugh at you because that would literally be dumb. We saw Robinhood move 80% with multiple trading halts causing frustration and bad risk management and causing losses to people because they couldn't access the market. Whereas in crypto, on the worst days, the market never stops. And so a 24-7 market, yes, there are flash events on exchanges and exchanges are trying very hard to mitigate those. Companies like CoinRoutes, we actually mitigate them for our clients by knowing where you know, unless there's a flash event on every exchange simultaneously, which as far as I can tell has never actually happened, you can mitigate those events. Those sorts of comparisons of the volatility data and the bid offer data, the depth of market, the transparency data is actually quite comparable between crypto and equities, for example. So when people say it's all shadowy in basements and the market doesn't really exist for it, it's just wrong. And in at that level of education, I showed this technology to to an outgoing commissioner, you know, before the pandemic. And he was like, wow, you need to, to show this to people in DC so they could see it. I went down and showed it to the staff of trading and markets when Brett Redfern was still running it, once again, pre-pandemic. And they were like, Yeah, this makes sense. We understand it. It's that level of education, however, that needs to take place. Because frankly, there is no way one could look at the market for Bitcoin and Ethereum and not conclude that it's more transparent, less manipulatable than the market for gold, platinum, palladium, and other things, which all have approved ETFs and are all considered to be reasonable you know, assets by investment consultants, for example. I guess there's still that one issue, though, of offshore exchanges dominating liquidity and the lack of surveillance over those venues. That is. In a 24-7 global market, that is an unavoidable fact. It is also an unavoidable fact that offshore liquidity and offshore trading in commodities is also happening. And whether or not, you know, so the Hunt brothers happened, in, you know, in the early 80s in the United States. No one knows, but there's all sorts of conspiracy theories on gold and palladium markets. So they have been moved from outside the United States. The fact of the matter is that is true. Uh, we also allow uh, ETFs on foreign equity exchanges, which have less exchanges. We've had a lot of interesting conversations about our Chinese equities trading correctly and what's going on there. Right, you know, you know, China listed uh, ADRs. Or yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. There's been like a wave of delisting on a lot of these Chinese companies, but at least they had their time in the sun. Let's at least get like a Bitcoin ETF, and and this could be an argument. And if it doesn't work out, if retail folks get burned, then delist it. But at least give them a chance. Well, I actually don't even think that's that's actually the Bitcoin ETF is a special case because we have legal products, legal SEC approved products, GBTC. And, and I don't want to, to, despite the fact of what I'm about to say about GBTC, kudos to Grayscale for bringing it to the market and satisfying investor demand, the vast majority of which have made an enormous amount of return by investing in GBTC. But it is a, a product that you can invest in out of every, whether it's, it's Ameritrade or E-Trade or Schwab, you can invest in your retail account 
So you can buy Bitcoin that way. The difference is, is when you bought it, most people who bought it just by the nature of, of the beast paid huge premiums to buy it relative to the NAV. And then it swung to a huge discount. And so that lack of tracking of NAV compared to a Bitcoin ETF is undeniably harming investors who didn't really understand that that could occur. I forget if it was you who made this joke or, or maybe it was Eric Belchunas at Bloomberg, but I wonder if it's a grayscale pumping tens of millions of dollars into DC to lobby against an ETF because that's been a huge boon for them. From what I can tell, at least what Barry says publicly, I think it's very, very clear that they think a DTF is going to get approved and they think that and they'll transition themselves towards one. But the point is, is that if GBTC were an ETF, it would be it would be one of the larger ETFs out there, certainly no, larger than 95 percent of all the approved ETFs. Yeah. That and it does trade with wildly swinging premiums or discounts, and that is harming investors. So the notion that the SEC can block it is problematic. I saw last week, I was watching in the gym on CNBC, mm -hmm. generally the only time I watch CNBC, uh, <laughs> that ProFunds now has a Bitcoin ETF using futures, which, you know, I'm, I'm kind of surprised they didn't say it was a leveraged ETF, but, you know, that would be kind of redundant. The reality mm -hmm. of the situation is that if you can, but not ETF, mutual fund. So you have mutual funds who can trade on it as well. And when you trade a mutual fund based on futures versus spot, it has issues. Look at the oil fund or other futures only ETFs and you see major tracking error because the role and the basis between the futures and the spot move. So why we're harming investors? The answer is technical reasons. The current SEC rules on custody and clearing are such that they don't want to understand that a large publicly listed company like Coinbase and other large companies that are on track toward public listing at some point, whether it be Gemini or Kraken, they're all, all very large. FTX is overseas, but FTX US is building here. There are lots of regulated in the sense of banking or you know MTL regulated, MSB or trust bank regulated exchanges that trade Bitcoin in the United States. The fact is an ETF that's based on the underlying will track better, will be better for investors. There's just no way about that. But yet the SEC insists that an ETF can only be based on a regulated underlying, which is fascinating because you have GLD. And last I checked, there's no regulated underlying for gold physical. Well, this regulatory stagnation, if you want to call it that, is not just impacting retail folks who have to get access through the market vis-a-vis Grayscale, which has its premiums or its discounts, but also impacting institutions. You know, I remember going back to 2018, talking to firms like Goldman um, when they first launched that first iteration of the trading desk and asked them, well, when are you actually going to be able to custody spot and trade spot? And at the time, they, they kind of gave a timeline of, you know, six months or waiting on the regulators. Well, that was over three years ago. So what is the issue? What It's not technical. I mean, you know, you worked at a big bank. You worked at Citi and built out electronic trading in uh, the 90s. It wasn't, you know, you, you get the right people, you build it out. It's clearly a regulatory concern, but one that I don't know, you probably they're, they're probably more open to you, these various banks when, when you talk to them. What is tying their hands? I think the issue the issue was articulated very well by Commissioner Peirce. The speech that she gave, the response to the Poloniex settlement, I think is very telling. 
The issue is simple. And I had a conversation, and I'm sorry to talk about a private conversation publicly, but it's interesting. I had a conversation with Robert Cook almost three years ago at the Georgetown Market Structure Conference. And I asked him, I said, listen, don't you agree that investors would be better off if they could be offered crypto trading and access to you know, Bitcoin and crypto via broker dealers, even if those broker dealers weren't specifically regulated on those products? Because FINRA has the idea of a non-securities designation. And broker dealers have a culture you know, whatever the world thinks of Wall Street and broker dealers, the broker dealer culture is essentially set up to understand things like segregation of client assets. Concepts of best execution are not foreign to broker dealers, like they were foreign to a lot of crypto dealers back in the day. Understanding, you know, disclosure of, you know, fee schedules, things like that, that you would normally think are, are just normal for broker dealers would be good. And he said, yes, it would be better if broker-dealers could offer that. And I said, but then ex please explain to me why your examiners and your firm – FINRA is a firm after all, a nonprofit it mm -hmm. might be – but your firm effectively has frozen broker-dealers from getting that designation. I can tell you it's yeah. still the case. I talked with two different traditional broker-dealers that are trying to offer crypto in the past week, and both have said, yeah, we still can't, quote, touch crypto spot. And what they mean by that is if they offered, if they set up an account at, let's say they wanted to set up an account with Coinbase Pro, with Gemini, and with you know Kraken, and then offer clients the ability to trade, and they set up a custodian you know relationship with one of the large custodians, whether that be Fidelity or Anchorage or Coinbase or Gemini, and they said, listen, could we just segregate customer funds? We'll set up sub accounts. We'll take the risk. We'll deal with it. We'll let our balance sheet backstop the insurance that these firms provide. And the answer from Finra is, well, no. And the fact that it's no is moronic. This is not a world that's small anymore. We have one of the largest IPOs of the year was Coinbase. We have so much money getting invested in the equity in crypto infrastructure and crypto companies, my own company included. So I'm, I'm well aware of what's going on. You saw Falcon X yesterday announced Nuts. that they're valued at three some odd billion dollars for providing a dealer that will compete. And their valuation is probably higher because Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs can't currently compete with their attempt to build out a prime broker before they're allowed to. How is it good for investors that companies who have large balance sheets are not allowed to touch physical crypto? It, it, it's beyond me. And, and the answer is because there are people in D.C. who effectively are picking winners or losers. Now, the previous chair, before he got into, before he left the chair, didn't want his legacy to allow people to invest in crypto because he feared that it would get wiped out. He believes the idiocy of Peter Schiff and Nouriel Roubini, who say that it's just a Ponzi and a shell game. The reality is, Bitcoin may or may not achieve what those of us believe it will achieve, which is digital gold status and beyond. But to say that that digital assets are going to disappear and become worthless, I think at this point strains credulity. Why they're picking winners and losers is beyond me. It's crazy. I mean, at this point, I think hopefully they begin to realize that it's not just a few assets, right? We've hit escape velocity to an extent where even if Bitcoin, you know, ends up like how gold has traded over the last few years. You know, I think it's down 3% over the last five years or something. 
there are all of these other things happening in the ecosystem. I think Solana and Pyth is one great example. I mean, it's brought in to the crypto market. A lot of these guys kind of hopped on the Solana Pyth bandwagon before they even looked at Bitcoin, which I think is really interesting and speaks to the degree to which the market has become more dynamic, right? And it's not the, oh, blockchain, not Bitcoin. It's maybe Bitcoin at some point, you know, it's interesting, but this literal other public blockchain, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that, look, I, I often I often look at, at some of the tribalism inside crypto as annoying because there are multiple use cases for digital assets and digital asset-based technologies that will change the way financial markets operate over the next 20 years. I mean, I found myself listening to you and Sam, for example, where you're talking about revolutionizing the way that people trade in many, many ways, and also revolutionizing the vertical integration of finance. That goes well beyond just Bitcoin as a store of value, which relates to its principles of money. It relates to DeFi, where mm -hmm. you have cabals today in multiple financial products, which are very, very hard to get into, that are under the, the subject of multiple class action lawsuits for blocking you know, competition in multiple products, whether that be securities lending or interest rate swaps. And you have a technology that, that has the ability to potentially to democratize many of these things. Now, what does that actually mean? It means less economic rent to centralized entities. It means helping people get access to financial products. There are many, many use cases in digital assets that are, are going to be enabled. And to say that you could put that genie back in the bottle, I think, is crazy. It, it's sort of like 20 years ago, people were, were afraid of 24-7 markets, and they were afraid of globalizing markets, and they were afraid of, of these extended hours. The rules for securities are really not friendly to extended hours, but here we have a digital market which does trade 24-7, and it has its own challenges, no doubt. But to say that that's a bad thing in an increasingly global world makes no sense to me. I want to give another shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leading platform for digital asset trade surveillance, market risk, and transaction monitoring with some of the largest crypto exchanges and institutions in the world using Aventus to drive efficiencies in their regulatory operations and mitigate the risks of fines and reputational damage. Visit AventusSystems.com today to find out why 80% of the firms who take a custom demo become clients. Shine a light on your trading today with Aventus. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. I also want to give a special thanks to Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. Maybe the best part is Exodus is integrated with the Trezor hardware wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at Exodus.com today.
I was listening to um, a podcast with Steve Cohen and some interview. I don't remember the guy's name, but they got onto the topic of crypto and he seems really interested in DeFi and said something to the effect of a lot of what's happening there pertains to what we do at point 72. If you kind of think about um, if you were at Two Sigma, but now with this backdrop of DeFi, how do you think you would have been building their market infrastructure differently? What does that look like? What do you sort of, because I think, I, I think it's an interesting question because I think a lot of these hedge funds are thinking about this right now. Well, you have to separate two pieces, Frank. There's the, the what's the current opportunity and what's the future opportunity. And they're both very, very important. So the current opportunity is let's invest in assets that are going to go up. It's that simple and there's no issue with that, right? You know, so get involved in the infrastructure that's doing it and they care about that. And the potential for returns in the, the digital asset space that support and are the winners in DeFi is, is enormous. So that's one. A second thing on the short term is do I want to market make because the spreads I can make market making as an AMM, if I do it right, can be large. And so there are people who are doing that. But let's talk about the future and why the future matters. And if you are taking at this from a look of my past employer to Sigma or from point 72, what do they pay in fees and what do they pay to trade to borrow securities, to do repos, to do interest rate swaps, to do prime brokerage, and what are the costs involved in a world where there's very little true competition, where assets and swaps aren't fungible across platforms? And the answer is it's significant. The frictional costs of doing a large part of what they do are high. And you know, it is something that it's amusing, but the way stock loan, and I'll pick on that one, for example, mm -hmm. hasn't really changed very much in 30 years. It's still basically run by the same firms who have access to the same amount of securities. And the way you find out what does it cost to borrow a security that's, quote, a special or hard to borrow name is generally you're making a phone call. Mm -hmm. And it's generally controlled by people who are trying to understand how that works. Now, fast forward to a, a world where you have DeFi applications for securities lending. And securities are now digital and can trade 24-7 against whatever currency on multiple exchanges. And you have a world where the frictional cost of doing macro investing or doing pairwise you know, market neutral investing go well down. And the ability to trade the U.S. versus companies in you know, Malaysia, it doesn't matter, become much lower. And all of a sudden, the addressable market for trading and the investability of trading from a hedge fund perspective goes way higher. And so the future of DeFi and the future of trading is global. And why is it that companies that are, you know, maybe multinational companies that are headquartered in Asia versus headquartered in the United States, you have vastly different abilities to short and long those and get those exposures, whereas a digital world, you can easily see that becoming much more seamless. And so the hedge funds like Point72 look at this and say, okay, I know that the world becomes more investable if these technologies succeed. And so when mm -hmm. you see people like FTX innovating and creating exposure outside of the United States to a variety of products, whether it was putting up lumber futures or, you know, presidential election futures or futures on Tesla, 
the reality of the situation is that you can figure out a way for those sorts of innovative financial products to become compliant, but those are easier for people to understand. What's harder for people to understand is the plumbing, the settlement costs and the financing costs of doing certain esoteric strategies will ultimately go down dramatically as DeFi finds its sea legs and mature. We're nowhere near that point yet, but the application of that technology is going to be profound as it grows. Have you been surprised at like who some of the winners and losers have been? That's one thing I've been, I've been kind of thinking about over the past few weeks. If you think about like the old world coming in, right, like backed Erisex, even to a degree, although Fidelity's business is heating up, you know, there's still Bitcoin only. These aren't, you know, and to be fair, you know, back raised a massive Series B, but the real like winners have been firms like FTX, which were more discounted in 2019. Well, I wish I could say I was surprised. I had a conversation with Commissioner Roisman at a NOIP event in public right before the pandemic. And I basically said to him, point blank, that it's sad that firms that are domiciled and regulated out of the United States are at such a massive disadvantage in the growing digital asset world to the point where, you know, as a startup, we had to make a choice to become software only. So CoinRoutes is software only for a very specific reason. We don't want to deal with the regulatory issues in the United States. And we saw that. And as a result, you know, we've become profitable and we're a bit, we're in the process of a Series B right now where we've signed our lead and we'll announce the full amount when it's all done. But, you know, we're in the 15 to 20 million range for a company that has, you know, an ARR right now that, you know, look, we're, we're relatively inexpensive as a profitable and growing company. The fact is, is we had to make that choice and issue the notion of being a broker and not create proprietary trading and not touch mm-hmm. customer funds in any way, because that was the only way we living in the United States could do so without becoming a target of regulators. So FTX being domiciled overseas didn't have that problem. Alameda didn't have that problem. They were able to trade and make a lot of money trading when when the days of money basically falling out of the sky. I think I talked to you about this in oh, 2017, yeah. how much money you could make at that point by just pure arbitrage, riskless arbitrage. And Sam talked about it with you as well. And that seeded their ability. Now, to his credit, an enormous credit, he saw that the future was going to be to leverage his regulatory advantages versus U.S. companies and start building really good technology that traders around the world would want to access. But we are already in the United States falling behind. I mean, Tom Chippis and Matt Trudeau at RSX I've talked to for years, they, they are regulatory compliant, sure, but they're less attractive because they had to offer futures with no margin like zero margin. We're not, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the need to go 100x and Sam just dropped to 20x, but being able to offer what institutions want, which in the world of Bitcoin on a risk-adjusted basis is generally between 3 and 5x margin. The fact is not being able to offer that made them non-competitive and that was problematic. And so that was their problem. Now, eventually, hopefully they will succeed and it is that way. But the reality is the US has seeded a lot. So if you look at who the winners are, there's a regulatory arbitrage going here. I mentioned FTX, and I mentioned Falcon X. Falcon X building a nice business, providing services in the world of crypto that their natural competitors, the ones who they would fear entering the market, are Morgan, Goldman, Credit Suisse, yeah, and they can't get in. And they can't get in because the regulators are basically saying, "Listen, 
you know, you have this multi-billion, you know, many billion dollar business here, which we're going to hold hostage to you building a business that could eventually become a multi-billion dollar business, but right now is still relatively small. And let, let's, let's not kid ourselves. The market cap of crypto is a fraction of the market cap of their other assets that these companies trade. And so they can't get to it. They can't enter. But that's why the valuation of Coinbase is so high relative to other publicly traded firms. That's probably why the, the market cap of Galaxy will be so high in the US. They're already in Canada and Falcon X, where their private market cap is so high. It's because of an artificial barrier to entry. Now, that being said, I do want to be clear. It is not at all clear that traditional firms will just go waltz in and dominate this business. There's a lot of wood to chop for that to happen. They have balance sheet and they have expertise in certain areas, but there are many differences between crypto and the other markets. And a lot of the technology, a lot of the expertise, they don't have. So it's not at all clear that Falcon couldn't win or the Galaxy couldn't win or that Coinbase couldn't win anyway. But the fact that they're not even that there's no no ability to compete is problematic. It gives them a leg up. One thing that I always enjoy about our conversations, you know, you're an ardent defender of crypto, but you don't you, you don't sort of drink too much of the Kool-Aid that you can't identify some of the issues that exist within the market structure and that exist across different trading venues. It's certainly gotten a lot better. And I think to your point, some of the issues we've seen in U.S. stocks has illuminated how crypto isn't necessarily the stepchild, so to speak, of markets. Equities have their own problems. Brokers and equities have their own problems and their own controversies, right? We've seen Robinhood pay quite a number of fines this year, not to pick on them specifically. But even with all that said, what are some of the top of mind issues that you think some of these venues still face? And what are your clients sort of talking about? Obviously, you kind of sit between investors and the exchanges. I remember in 2017 that one of the one of the gripes was that all of their APIs were set up differently and they were constantly changing them. Maybe that's resolved, but what other issues still exist? No, not resolved. Look, at the end of the day, Reg SCI was a, a bazooka. Uh, hunting a problem that a sniper's rifle could have hunted um, in the equity world. There's an, undeniably it's overbroad and, and, and hard to comply with, and I'm not suggesting that for crypto. But the need for an SRO, or not an SRO, um, uh, it, the, well, basically an SRO, the need for a, a crypto industry-backed you know, regulator that is from the crypto industry, not from the outside, is still large. If you had a, like I participated in a code of conduct you know, exercise with a group called Global Digital Finance, you know, last year. Uh, and, you know, people like Solidus Labs are leading that effort or trying to. There are other groups that are trying to lead it. There are issues. Exchanges routinely make changes without necessarily doing proper disclosures. It's gotten much, much better. But it happens, it's happened in the last week that an exchange made a change that wasn't backward compatible. Exchanges make software changes on schedules that you don't know they're doing it if they think that it won't impact you, but then they have outages uh, where there are issues. On May 19th, we had seven different exchanges go down for an hour or more during that day of high volatility. Those are still, reminds me more of the 90s in the equity markets than current day in the equity markets. Now that said, the 90s, not the 1890s, but the 1990s, <laughs> the fact is that crypto exchanges uptime are dramatically better than they were even two years ago, much less five years ago. So 
and they've done a much better job. The market is pushing them to do a much better job of having status pages and APIs to tell you. Now, it's a little bit uneven. It's not perfect. So it's improving. It's getting much and much better. But yes, if there were an industry regulator and there was a place for people to get together, it would be better. The other issue in the crypto space, frankly, is more internal. Uh, There's still, it's changing. You know, I think you might remember a couple of years ago, once again, pre-pandemic, I was on a panel with, you know, Max from uh, B2C2, where someone asked me, what is the greatest, what is, you know, CoinRoute's biggest competition? And I said, ambivalence. And people looked at me like, what the hell did I mean? And I said, well, no one cares about best execution. No one cares if I'm buying Bitcoin when at the time it was, you know, what, 5,000 or whatever. Uh, if I'm buying Bitcoin at 5,000 and I think it's going to go to 5 million, do I really care if I pay 5,100 mm-hmm. versus 5,000? And and that's silly, actually, because the larger it's going to go, the more those little bits matter because you would have more of it. But forget the silliness. People are starting to care. So firms like mine, we fo- we're focused on trimming basis points off of people's experience. You know, we've done a lot of TCA, transaction cost analysis, on our algos and know that our market impact metrics are just unbelievable good compared to the industry. Now, most of that is because so many people trade badly. The fact that our average order doesn't deviate almost anything from the trading price and the volume weighted average price from before our order started to after our order finishes and every way in between is people think that's amazing. And what it really means is the market is getting more efficient. And if you can take advantage or understand what's going on, you can do better. But the reality is most trading is still done without that as an idea. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day. And they were surprised by the fact that as a retail investor, net of fees, they get a better deal from trading with Robinhood than Coinbase. Hmm. And I said, I'm not surprised even slightly. And they say, well, how could you not be surprised by that? You don't. I've seen you criticize Robinhood to me. My answer is maybe. But Robinhood, they take whatever they're taking in payment for order flow from whatever market maker they have disclosed. And I think you know who it is, but I'm not going to disclose because I don't know if it's public, but the market makers are still providing pricing that's pretty close to the market, whereas an uninformed person who trades on Coinbase, not pro, but Coinbase still pays a percent and a half commission, and that's public knowledge. Well, you can trade well inside that. Our clients who have exchange accounts on uh, smaller exchanges uh, trade literal fractions of what a retail client will pay just in fees. And so the fact that it's so uneven means that, yes, people can make money in the crypto space and retail in general because of the volatility and the fact that it's gone up so much has made money so they don't care. But that is changing. More and more institutions, more and more hedge funds, more and more end investors are caring about the quality of, of how they trade and about the costs involved in slippage you know, when they move from one asset to another. And that is a big change. And that is one that is people are voting with their feet. And as a result, expect the market to continue to improve more and more and more. And that's why you see services and valuations like you see on Falcon X, because they're basically just providing that to more clients. And that's why you see the same thing with my company. It's really that pursuit of best price. And then the last thing that is an issue in the crypto market is still more and more disclosures, what the real risks are. People are really excited about DeFi, and rightly so. 
But the fact of the matter is you have protocols out there which have significant vulnerabilities. And I'm not talking about I'm much less worried about the hacks, although I think that that is obviously a major issue. I'm talking about things like Titan with with the ultimate drug pool that you saw where AMMs, because the way they're done, if someone is large enough to outsize the entire market, can create a very bad situation for the way that those operate. Generally, they work really well if expensive, but the fact that you can outsize the market is problematic. You know, those sorts of things will will work themselves out as people say, okay, I need a market structure that that can't occur. I need something that's sensitive to size, and I need to understand what an order book looks like, and I need to have what you know what an order book is is an expression of a marginal utility curve. I know it sounds like mm-hmm. a geeky thing, but the idea that you don't have a curve of what happens at different sizes, any market structure that doesn't support that is going to be vulnerable to very large players. And so we kind of understand that as an industry, but that sort of thing needs to happen. And you will see innovation. I would be totally unsurprised if the next generation of DeFi market making doesn't have auction methodologies inside it, not just for gas fees, Hmm. but for size of orders as well, because it's necessary. It's the way that markets have evolved and people haven't repealed the law of supply and demand. You know, there are a lot of you know politicians who think you they've repealed that basic economic laws, but there's no way in markets you can repeal the law of supply and demand. There still are. There is someone willing to sell more as the price goes higher and buy more as the price goes lower. Any market structure that doesn't recognize that is going to be somewhat problematic one way or another. And so you'll see that evolution. That will happen. Excelsior. You know, we, we probably should at some point have like some type of panel where we juxtapose because a lot of the time we're talking about like centralized market structure in crypto versus centralized equity market structure in crypto. But at some point, I'll have to talk with the team to figure out like a panel or podcast where we kind of juxtapose traditional market structure with DeFi and, and look at where maybe DeFi is kind of going in, in the wrong direction and how they can borrow from one, one another. Dave, I want to thank you so much for stopping by the show to talk with us. It's Like I said in the beginning, it's been a long time coming. I really am excited for this to get out. We touched on basically everything, DeFi, institutionalization, market structure, regulation, some of your fiery thoughts about what's going on in DC. It's been a pleasure. Where can our listeners learn more about what you guys are doing at CoinRoutes? So our website is coinroutes.com. I will do more on on the blog. I, they can follow me on Dave Weisberger one at Twitter, or on LinkedIn is Dave Weisberger. CoinRoutes will do more official channels. Uh, as I said, we're in the process of a Series B, and one of the uses of funds is to improve our social presence. And frankly, uh, within the next year, to launch a retail-oriented active trader product. Uh, joining mm. our board will be the CEO of ZebPay and a board member from the Brave browser. And uh, we are are looking to move into a more mass market approach. That's one of the things that we are doing. Oh, pretty cool. And that's very exciting. And as, as I said, it's not concluded. You'll be the one, the, the first one to know and we have details to share exactly. But uh, we are doing our, our first closing now. The documents are signed and over the next six weeks, everything will get done. But so that's what, what things are moving. So stay tuned. Dave, thank Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. The Scoop will be back for you again with another exciting guest. Talk to you all soon.
All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.